And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West in the most haunted city in the country. Well, before I get started, you know, something I've got on my mind. I need to put it out there to all my listeners. You know, when you serve this country, you run the risk of being injured. And there's quite a number of 100% disabled veterans. And they receive a disability uh, pension, if you will. Uh, And there are uh, corrupt builders, attorneys, and judges who think that is free money for the taking. And they keep the pressure on a disabled veteran. He turns into an ATM, starts spewing that money out. We hired a roofer company 10 years ago. He said he said they were the greatest people who ever lived. Screwed up the roof, walked off the job after a five-day job. was supposed to take five days. It took six months, and they just finally walked off. Got paid more than they invoiced, and then demanded $10,000 more because they knew exactly how much in grants I had available. And as one of the partners said, that's our money. We're entitled. And they have kept me in court for 10 years. Uh, one court said it didn't meet code. That was a suit brought by their own bonding company. And then they said, okay, fine. Took me into another court with another attorney. And that judge said, well... Uh, we're going to send it over to arbitration because, you know, the, the attorneys for the, the roofers, fine people. And they wouldn't be bringing this case unless there was something to it. Now, city records show there was no final inspection. And when I went down and talked to the city, they said, you have to understand, they take our inspectors out to lunch every day. They're fine, upstanding people. We're not going to do anything to them. So they've been paying bribes, and that's okay because, well, you know, the inspectors are entitled to it, and these are such fine people to take the grandmothers to church every Sunday, and yada, 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 yada. I wouldn't be surprised to see the two of them canonized. They ought to be canonized out of the barrel of a cannon, but that's just me. So the VA, in its infinite wisdom, said, look, we'll, f- we'll fix the issue for you. You're a disabled veteran. And they said, use this roofing company. I wouldn't have known they existed except for the VA. Well, that roofer was worse than the first one. He doesn't have insurance. He didn't post the bond that's required by the city. He's a wonderful guy. He doesn't have to, you know. And didn't even bother to get a permit to do the work. Screwed up the work so badly and came to me and said, look, you know, I'm, I'm working for you. And the VA is too cheap to give me money to get the materials. And I've got to have it. Oh, I, I can't do your roof. So I gave him some money that was supposed to be refunded. And, of course, as soon as he got the money, he forgot all about refunding. He has lied every step of the way and he covers up one lie with another lie 
And when the VA said, well, why don't you have a permit to put on the roof? Oh, we, we don't need one because he's outside the city limits. I'm about as inside the city as you can get. Told me when I found out about it that uh, when I said, when does final inspection going to happen? Oh, there's not going to be one. The city doesn't like you, so they're not going to come out and inspect it. Just take my word. It's a great job. It is a total mess. Twenty, a third of my house I can't use because of uh, the uh, rains that we had just have destroyed the room. And that was my studio. Well, now that I got that off my chest. And, of course, uh, everybody is aghast that I, I think there's something wrong with expecting uh, honest work. Because this is free money. It's anybody's. You shouldn't expect to get something for it. You didn't work for it. You just bled for it. Well, today is January 27th, 27th day of the year. 338 days remain to the year is over with. Year 98, Trajan succeeded his adoptive father, Nerva, as Roman emperor. And under his rule, the Roman Empire reached its maximum extent. 945, the co-emperors Stephen and Constantine are overthrown and forced to become monks by Constantine VII. He became the sole emperor of the what was the Eastern Roman Empire, what became the Byzantian Empire. The uh, 1606, the gunpowder plot. The trial of Guy Fawkes and other conservatives began ending with their execution January 31st. They were going to set off a bomb underneath Parliament when the king was going to be addressing the, the uh, august body. 1695, Mustafa II becomes the Ottoman Sultan and Caliph of Islam in Istanbul on the death of Ahmad II. Mustafa rules until he abdicates in 1703. Uh, 1759, Spanish forces clash with indigenous Illichis in southern Chile in the Battle of Rio Bueno. Uh, 1776, American Revolutionary War, Henry Knox's noble train of artillery arrives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 1785, University of Georgia is founded, first public university in the U.S. And if the founders could see it now. 1820, a Russian expedition led by Fabian Gottlieb on Bellingshausen and Mikhail Petrovich Lazarev, who discovered the Antarctic continent, approaching the Antarctic coast. 1825, U.S. Congress approves Indian Territory in which present-day Oklahoma, clearing the way for forced relocation of the Eastern Indians on the Trail of Tears. And nobody tell Newsom about it. <coughs> He'll want to give each one of them $5 million like he does all the, the blacks in California. 1869, where the money's coming from is anybody's guess. 1868, Boshin War. Battle of Toba Fushimi begins between the forces of the Tokugawa Shogunate and the pro-imperial factions. Ends in a defeat for the Shogunate and it's a pivotal point in the Meiji Restoration. Uh, 1869, in the Boshin War, the Tokugawa rebels established the Izo Republic in Hokkaido. 
1880, Thomas Edison. She wants to go out. In 1880, Thomas Edison got a patent for his incandescent lamp. Uh, 1916, on this date, the British government passes the Military Service Act and introduces conscription in the United Kingdom. Getting ready for World War I. 1918, saw the beginning of the Finnish Civil War. 1924, six days after his death, Lenin's body is carried into a specially erected mausoleum. You know, a number of years ago, my former stepson uh, went on a trip to Russia with the, the high school band and walked into the Lenin Mausoleum drinking a soda. And the Russians had a cow. Uh, Nineteen thirty nine saw the first flight of the Lockheed P thirty eight Lightning. Nineteen forty three, World War Two, the Eighth Air Force sorties ninety one B seventeen and B twenty fours to attack the U boat construction yards at Wilhelmshaven in Germany. First American bombing attack on Germany. 1944, World War II, the 900-day siege of Leningrad is lifted. 1945, the Soviet 322nd Rifle Division liberates the remaining inmates of Auschwitz and Birkenau. 1951, saw nuclear testing at the Nevada test site, beginning with Operation Ranger. Uh, 1961, Soviet submarine S-80 sinks when its snorkel malfunctions and floods the boat. Uh, it was um, completely unexpected. 1961. It was a diesel-electric submarine. Um, it... Uh, Let's see. It was operating in the Barents Sea at snorkel depth. Had to have the snorkel for its diesel engine. Uh, went below snorkel depth, which should have caused the automatic snorkel valve to shut, preventing water from coming in. Instead, the, the icing system that should have warmed the valve with hot water from the diesel engine has been switched off, and the valve became jammed with ice. The um, all sixty-eight officers and men of the SS eighty or the of the S eighty were lost um, for seven and a half years. They had no idea what happened uh, to the submarine. It was found at a depth of six hundred and forty-three feet. So even the best laid plans of mice and men. 1965, South Vietnamese Prime Minister Tran Vinh Hoang is removed by the military hunt of Nguyen Khan. 1967, Apollo program. Astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee are killed in a fire during a test of their Apollo 1 spacecraft at the Kennedy Center. Uh, 1973, the Paris Peace Accords officially ends the Vietnam War. Colonel William Nold is killed in action, becoming the last recorded American combat casualty. Yeah, what a colonel was doing on the front lines is anybody's guess, but um, 
1996, in a military coup, Colonel Ibrahim Bari Manasara deposes the first democratically elected president of Niger. Uh, his name was Mahamain Usman. The uh, 1996 Germany first observed the International Holocaust Remembrance Day. At the same time, other factions of their government are denying the Holocaust ever happened. 2002, an explosion in a military storage facility in Lagos, Nigeria, kills 1,100 people and displaces over 20,000 others. Uh, let's see. 2011. The Arab Spring, the Yemeni Revolution began as over 16,000 protesters demonstrated in Sanat. The Arab Spring was a, an Obama creation, don't you know? Um, 2013, 242 people died in a nightclub fire in the Brazilian city of Santa Maria, Rio Grande do Sul. 2014, the Ohio conflict, the Kobani Canton declares its autonomy from the Syrian Arab Republic. And in 2017, a naming ceremony for the chemical element Tennessean takes place in the U.S. Well, that's pretty much uh, our little history segment for today. And to the, all those who say, who cares about history? Those that don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. I've said that many, many times. Now, yesterday we talked about um, haunted hospitals in Canada. And we're going to talk about some haunted hospitals in British Columbia today. One very scary place is the Riverview Hospital in Coquitlam. Now... There have been some very horrific therapies that were once common practice for treatment of mental illness, not only here, but elsewhere around the world. <coughs> Those with mental illness were quite often looked at as guinea pigs. But the grounds and building of Riverview Hospital, which have been a popular filming location for such notable TV programs as The X-Files and Fringe and Supernatural have hosted almost as many creeping, interesting tales as have been explored on the various TV shows. That's a case of art mimicking reality. Now, phenomena that have been reported at this site include shadowy apparitions believed to be former patients, Mysterious ghostly stirrings and echoes in the abandoned underground tunnels that connect the buildings. Phantom footsteps. Inexplicable moving objects. Slamming doors and windows and disembodied voices telling visitors to go home and leave us alone. Um, it opened as a mental health facility between 1913 and Well, in 1913, and it stayed in operation until 2012. Whistlone Building was originally constructed to hold a maximum of 480 patients, wound up housing 1,919 at one time. 
1956, the hospital had reached more than 4,300 patients. Former staff talked about carrying ice cream pails full of pills up to patients and told stories about bed crowding. In fact, they were so tightly packed together that a bed had to be pushed out of the room in order to be made, after which it would be pushed back in and the next one would be hauled out. Over the years, reductions occurred and different facilities were closed, including West Lawn in 1983 and the Decrease Clinic in 1992. And by 2002, there were a mere 800 beds in all the Riverview, and in 2005, the East Lawn Building was closed. The North Lawn Building closed in 2007 and in 2012, just a few years after it was added to the Canadian Register of Historic Places, Riverview Hospital shut down completely. Now, Connolly Lodge, Cottonwood Lodge, and a high-security facility for the mentally ill are still in operation on the grounds. December 2015, the provincial government announced a $175 million investment that would rebuild and reestablish the grounds as a center for mental health treatment, which was said to reinvigorate the population on the grounds. Construction is scheduled to begin, uh, was scheduled to begin in 2017 with the opening designated for 2019. But in the meantime, there are enough lingering spirits and eerie tales reported in the location to keep even the most avid ghost hunter busy for quite a number of years. Now, as mentioned, parts of the hospital have been popular for filming movies and TV, and the location has been referred to as one of the most filmed sites in all of Canada. But while these fictional films and TV shows are being shot on location, not all the eerie chills and terrors experienced by the actors came from the scripts. One actor known as Kaz, uh, whose story was reported in a uh, a well-known book, got far more than he expected when he spent the night in the West Malone building in the Crease Clinic. 2004, he was uh, had a small part in a horror film. When he wasn't needed on set, he took some time to explore various parts of the building, and he described getting bad feelings in multiple locations, as well as having two startling visual encounters. He said that two out of the five floors of the West Lawn building left him with strong negative vibes, and in the basement tunnels in particular, he experienced an uncanny and overwhelming bad feeling. It was a repeated encounter with a spectral canine that left the deepest impression on this young man. Over the course of the six days he spent in the building, he'd explore the dark hallway of the fourth floor, usually between midnight and two in the morning. From the far end of the dark corridor, only by the red glow of the exit sign at the far end, he saw something moving toward him. It was low to the ground and it moved quickly. The dark shaped it. it appeared to him to be a dog. Now, charging toward him, making no noise whatsoever, the creature seemed to be attacking. As it grew closer, he could tell the dog was uh, partially transparent. And each time, just before it got to him, it would fade away. Well, he said later he didn't believe it at first until he saw it in three separate nights in the same corridor. Intrigued by the feelings and the sights, he patrolled the building with a camera and took a picture of what had been described to him by the building's liaison as the Candy Lady Ghost. Candy Lady uh, 
ghost is believed to reside in and near a fourth floor room called the Ladybug Room. And this room is very unique for two reasons. While the door doesn't have a doorknob, it's the only room in the entire building that appears to have ambient light coming from somewhere inside, visible from the crack at the bottom of the door. And that door is locked tight. And as hard as he tried to pry that door open, it simply would not bulge. Budge. I can't talk. When he knelt down and tried to peer inside the room, he couldn't see much, but he could have sworn he heard somebody or something breathing on the other side of the door. Now, as a self-declared non-believer in ghosts part of filming at Riverview Hospital, he left the building a firm believer they do exist, or something does. In a 2014 Huffington Post article, a janitor who worked at the hospital after it closed down described his job there as the scariest thing he'd ever done in his life. He talked about the underground tunnels as creepy, a place where he constantly heard echoes behind him. And each time he had to move through them, he never dared look over his shoulder, rushing to get out of it as quickly as possible. Also mentioned hearing snickering and laughter and whispers coming behind the closed doors of what used to be patients' rooms whenever he walked the corridor by himself. There are two investigators who head up a group called uh, Six Feet Under, uh, a non-profit group dedicated to professional, respectful paranormal investigations, conducted investigations and uh, using electronic recording device in the West Lawn, Center Lawn, and East Lawn building at multiple times. I don't know why I've got the hiccups suddenly. 2014 and 2015. Using digital recorders in a spirit box, which is a device that uses a modified AM-FM radio to scan frequencies at a high rate of speed and capture EVP or electronic voice phenomena. The group recorded multiple inexplicable voices and noises. Um, you know, I heard somebody the other day say there's no such thing as an EVP, it's all imagination. Uh, when I used to do my radio show uh, from a local radio station before I went to the internet, uh, I had a... Um, a group invite me to join them for a uh, an investigation of uh, a sarco, the oldest smelter in Texas. And of course, it had long been abandoned. And I sat in a one of their buildings, and I heard machines operating around me. There was no machines in the building. There's nobody in the building but me. But I heard those machines start up, and I heard people walking. Um, their security staff, which was pretty good, uh, reported going to, uh, there were four of them in a Jeep going to a location where there had been a, a reported uh, incident. And they met a work crew coming back from their shift, a work crew that had been on that property in 20 years. When they swung or found a place they could turn around and go back, there was nobody to be found. Well, getting back to Six Feet Under, you can hear recordings on the group's website listen to the sounds of children screaming. They're ghostly voices that seem to mock the words of the investigators, repeating such words as yeah and perfect. Also feminine voices saying help me and don't go and calling out for Matt, who's actually the name of one of the team's investigators. 
Now, some of the other recordings from that website include the sound of spirits singing and giggling and more aggressive voices are verbally abusive to the investigators and utter get out and a number of more blatant threats such as uh, just die. Some of the spirits are heard to say we're locking you out when a tour guide leading the group had trouble unlocking a door in the, the attic. Others offered friendly advice. One feminine voice repeatedly warned uh, one of the investigators to run. Well, the stated on their website reported in a 2014 Calgary Metro article that these two conduct their investigations as professionals and avoid sacred places such as cemeteries. We're not there to cause disrespect whatsoever, uh, one of the investigators said. We're there to gather more information about the paranormal and find out unknown things from spirits. But unlike these two, not all ghost hunters behave with professionalism and respect. In fact, there was one individual here who gathered quite a group of followers who thought he was an end-all, be-all. was an arrogant, obnoxious twit who everything he knew about the ghost of El Paso he took out of my books and pretended he had written them. My name, which is on my books, he used to tell folks was his pen name. The... Um, A lady named Heather Anderson, a caregiver who worked at the operational section of Riverview Hospital, feeding and bathing and looking after the needs of patients, posted an article on the Paranormal Studies and Inquiry Canada website regarding the invasion of privacy. She described ghost hunters who would uh, occasionally appear at all hours of the night, showing little consideration for the patients, their families, or the staff. While she admitted to having experienced strange events while working at Riverview, including a voice close to her ear saying, don't do that, when she was standing alone in one of the, the bedrooms, she expressed a desire for those intrigued to respect and consider the privacy not only of the current residents, but those who once lived and maybe died there. Now from this particular hospital, which was Riverview, let's go to the Vancouver General Hospital in Vancouver, Canada. We're going to talk about the Phantom of Room 415. Now, nurses are expected to be calm, cool, and collected in the face of utmost tragedy and in life-and-death situations. But despite their training and experiencing, they can sometimes find the passing of a patient difficult to accept. And sometimes a patient displays an uncanny will to live to survive a tragedy and might not fully accept passing on to the next world. And that's exactly what seems to have happened in room 415. That's part of the burn unit of Vancouver General Hospital. October 1975, a series of giant explosions rocked a towering grain elevator on the waterfront of North Vancouver. Uh, multiple blasts set off an unrelenting blaze that, according to a Wilmington Morning Star article took over 90 minutes for firemen to bring under control. Forced hundreds of nearby residents to flee their homes and injured 16 workmen, four of whom died and one whose body was never found. It was a sharp explosion. It must have shaken loose a lot of grain dust, and then came the big one. A great roar that went through, completely through the building, according to Barney Chapman, an electrician who witnessed the explosions. He said, I saw one man just outside uh, who had had his clothes ripped right off his body. 
Others came staggering out of the building. Even though I knew them, I couldn't recognize some of them because of the dirt and the burns. The blast and the fire was blamed on conveyor belt friction, which generated a spark that detonated grain dust in the building. I saw a situation involving um, grain dust um, exploding. Uh, I was teaching at the U.S. Army Infantry School, and we did a tour in downtown Columbus, Georgia. And uh, we talked about how different things would be defended and attacked. And there was one grain um, depository that um, literally disintegrated. The explosion was so massive. Luckily, there were buildings between us and that one. Now, this tragedy at uh, in Vancouver began at the complex. Uh, used for loading grain shipments bound overseas, continued into the, the nearby burn unit of the Vancouver General Hospital. One of the victims who arrived at the hospital was a 28-year-old man by the name of Brian. And his prognosis was negative. He was in terrible shape, but staff at the hospital were surprised and delighted to learn that Brian was a fighter, and though facing a tremendous challenge and unimaginable pain, he struggled against the odds and fought valiantly. He was in room 415, and he refused to give in to his injuries. Now, though staff and friends and family encouraged him in his battle against the impossible odds, he eventually ran out of strength and could no longer fight. His heart gave out and he died. Just before he died, he said to confided in a nurse that he was in too much pain and very tired. Uh, but his tough will and courage made it difficult for the nurses to accept the fact he died. Not long after his death, a nurse walked into room 415 and spotted something odd on the empty bed. The covers actually shifted as though somebody was lying in the bed and rolled over. And as she watched, she could have sworn she also heard something of the quiet, rhythmic sound of a man breathing in his sleep. Well, before too much longer, other nurses and staff members reported seeing and hearing strange things both in and near the room, including a blaring radio suddenly turning on, the toilet flushing, and odd sensation of a prickly coal when you walk through the door. On one occasion, a male nurse preoccupied with getting room 415 ready for the next patient walked in and noticed a colleague's white form out the corner of his eye. When he turned to ask what he'd, uh, if he thought he could help his colleague, the white form fell to the floor. It was a pile of dressings. Nobody there at all. So why were the dressings in human form prior to collapsing on the floor? Apparently, Brian wasn't just visible to the staff at the hospital. Somebody who could fully understand the plight of the burn victims in that unit, he appeared to some of the patients who spent time in room 415. One nurse re uh, recounted uh, that uh, Brian had once appeared to a woman who, like Brian, had been admitted to the hospital with burns so severe that it was unlikely she'd live very long woman uh, described to another nurse a strange young man who visited her at a time when only close family members were allowed access. He told her his name was Brian, and he kept her company. 
On another occasion, a patient in the adjacent room, room 413, remarked that a mysterious young male doctor appeared in the middle of the night to help the patient deal with his extreme pain. And despite the odd sightings and eerie occurrences and inexplicable visits from a stranger that seemed to match Brian in his description, staff members felt that the spiritual presence of Brian in and around room 415 was not an evil spirit at all. Rather, all the stories pointed to a young man who wanted to make sure that everybody knew he was still around and in some way still fighting the good fight alongside him, hoping to make a positive difference. Now from Vancouver, let's go to Eastern Canada. The Contra Care Psychiatric Facility in St. John, New Brunswick. Now the building that was the Contra Care Psychiatric Facility long been demolished, replaced by a privately owned but publicly accessible park, offers picturesque views of both the St. John skyline and the uh, the attractive reversing falls. That's a series of rapids on the St. John River, so called because of the flow of the Semodiernal tides and underwater ledges cause the flow of water to reverse against the prevailing current. But they aren't the only unique and seemingly supernatural thing that occurs here. Uh, according to the now defunct Haunted North American website, electronic devices cease to work consistently on the side of the old facility. You can hear disembodied voices. And you see mysterious mist and shadowy figures believed to be a ghostly apparition from our patients and staff of the old facility uh, have been long been reported by visitors. Uh, the site of uh, Wollastog Park is maintained by J.D. Irving Limited, was once the location of the Contra Care Psychiatric Facility. Founded in 1835, it was called the Provincial Lunatic Asylum until 1985. And first mental health facility constructed in British North America. One time it housed as many as 1,697 patients. By the late 1980s, patients were moved to a new facility in nearby suburban South Bay. 1999, the old Contra Care building was finally demolished. Now, according to a story on the PSI CAN website, Security guard patrolling the grounds in 1991 when the building was still operational met with the paranormal. As he passed the churchyard, he heard the distinct sound of a baby crying. Well, thank you, someone had abandoned a child. He searched everywhere. Couldn't figure out what was causing the sound. He wondered where it could be coming from because he didn't know which wards had children or toddlers, but no matter where he looked, he couldn't find the source of that crying child. When he radioed the front desk to report the anomaly, he was informed of two things. He said there hadn't been a baby in that facility since 1937, and it wasn't an uncommon occurrence for people to hear the disturbing sound of a baby crying uh, in the dark of the night. Then in Halifax, Nova Scotia, we got Victoria General Hospital. Now, Halifax is a city known to have more than its fair share of ghosts, maybe because... Um, one reason may be the age of the city originally founded in 1749 but also because one of the greatest disasters in Canadian history occurred there 
December 1917, the French munition ship, the SS Mont Blanc, collided with the Norwegian ship, the SS Emo, in the, uh, the Narrows near Halifax Harbor. It resulted in a massive explosion that killed close to 2,000 people and injured almost 90,000 others. Now, some people believe that a tragic event like the Halifax explosion can result in the inability of countless lost souls to find their way to the other side and to the peace that everyone hopes for. Others believe that some of those lost spirits are sympathetic to those who are suffering or in pain and they behave as a sort of a spirit guide whose purpose is to help newly departed lost souls find their own eternal peace. One of them just might be the individual referred to as the old gray nun from the Victoria General Hospital. Now, the story of the, the nun is written in some detail in a 2009 book called Halifax Haunts. Established in 1887, the Victoria General Hospital, located at 1278 Tower Road, originally began as a city hospital in the 1850s. Now, in a chapter in that book, Halifax Haunts, uh, entitled The Old Gray Nun, there's a story reported from a woman by the name of Bonnie. Now, Bonnie was still a relatively new nurse when she encountered the old gray nun on one of her nightly rounds. Walking quietly from room to room in the dark with her flashlight, she checked on each patient in turn before going to the, to the room of an elderly gentleman by the name of Edgar. Now, Bonnie and the other nurses were somewhat fond of Edgar, sweet old man who seemed to be the perfect father figure. In Bonnie's case, her father had already passed on. Because of this personal connection, because she knew that Edgar's health was failing, she always looked forward to seeing him. But on this particular night, when she approached his room with, with no light but that of her flashlight, she was surprised to find that Edgar wasn't alone. The room was filled with a soft gray light she described as similar to the early morning light that accompanies uh, gray fog rising up from the sea. It is bright enough that she didn't need her flashlight to see the old gray nun standing by Edgar's bedside, looking down at the old man. And she could tell the figure's lips were moving as if she were praying under her breath. Well, Bonnie didn't disturb the two, stood in the doorway and watched. As she saw the old gray nun lift her hand to Edgar's brow, she might be saying goodbye to an old friend. And as the feeling overtook her and she took a deep breath, it seemed to Bonnie as if a bright light had suddenly been turned on. She closed, closed her own eyes, and when she opened them again, the, the bright light, the, the dull gray light, and the old gray nun were all gone. All that lingered in Edgar's room was the faint scent of incense. Something else became clear to Bonnie at that point. Edgar was dead. He had a peaceful look on his face, a soft smile as if he just shared a fine joke with a dear friend. Now, there was no way the old gray nun could have gotten out of the room without passing Bonnie in that doorway because that was the only entrance. When Bonnie later shared her experience with the head nurse, the head nurse simply smiled and remarked the old gray nun had been spotted around the hospital for many years. I believe she might have been a nurse that worked there during the time of the Halifax explosion. Well, Bonnie was convinced that the late-night sighting that 
We should see the old green nun at least one more time. Maybe one final time before going home. Well, Bonnie has since gone to her own reward. And you have to wonder. She died with a smile on her lips, similar to Edgar's, looking up at the soft gray light and the friendly face of a of a uh, spirit guide who was there to help her go on her way to eternal rest. Well, from Halifax, we go to Ontario. Hamilton, Ontario, to be exact. Hamilton Psychiatric Hospital. Now, Century Manor, the last remaining building from the Hamilton Asylum for the Insane, is tucked behind the northeast side of the $581 million uh, St. Joseph uh, Healthcare, uh, Hamilton's uh, West 5th Campus which opened in February 2014. And although Century Manor is a perfect example of Victorian Gothic architecture, it's sat vacant for more than 20 years, and the architect of its preservation and future use is a controversial one. It also provided plenty of fodder for spooky stories and tales of eerie echoing cries from patients long past. These stories are whispered among those who find themselves in the shadow of this historic building. Hamilton Asylum for the Insane, also known as the Ontario Hospital, later Hamilton Psychiatric Hospital, opened in 1876 on 529 acres of land adjacent to the escarpment on Hamilton's West Mountain. Perched on a lush landscape of grass and trees high above the cities, um, this magnificent setting is relatively isolated and was until well into the 20th century only accessible by a single dirt road. Although it's initially intended for inebriates, alcoholics, uh, we might say, the hospital began to fill with mentally disturbed patients, and the housing and treatment of that particular sort of patient became its primary function. With the next nearest asylums located in Toronto and in London, this location served patients from the city of Hamilton as well as the ten surrounding counties. And the location was self-sufficient. An adjacent farm was complete with chickens and pigs and cattle and fruits and vegetables and had their own butcher, bakery, tailor, fire hall, skating and curling rinks, tennis courts, even a chapel. In an article by Mary Nolan about the manor in Hamilton Spectator, August 28, 2010, a letter to the superintendent dated March 14, 1876, was quoted. And it was shortly after the hospital opened. It said, on Friday, I proposed to send up 20 male and 10 female lunatics. Of course, this first batch will all be good workers and perfectly quiet, so you'll be able to utilize our labor and put in this asylum in order for the reception of another batch that will come next week. Well, part of a cluster of buildings that included the Barton Building and the Orchard House, the East House, uh, which is now known as Century Manor, was opened in um, 1884 to res- uh, serve as a reception hospital. That meant that people could walk in off the street without needing a physician's referral. But just as the original building had been intended to serve inebriates but ended up housing the mentally ill, the East House's function evolved from its original intention and became home to Ontario's criminally insane. 
1890, the hospital housed 915 patients and employed as many as 119 uh, staff. By 1902, a training school for psychiatric nursing was established there. It was accredited in 1924, and more than 240 nurses graduated from the facility before it closed down in 1956. Uh, being a psychiatric nurse is not everybody's cup of tea. Back in the day, treatments for mental illness were significantly more barbaric and living conditions at mental institutions were not ideal, to say the least. Cruelty and injustice seemed to be par for the course for those whose plight brought them into the realm of mental institutions. Electroconvulsive therapies described in that same Hamilton Spectator article as jumper cables for the brain were cutting-edge treatments that were implemented uh, quite often. Hamilton Psychiatric Hospital, a museum now located near the Century Manor building, displays the, the list restraints, irrigation syringes, and a tree pine. A circular instrument used to saw holes on the patient's skull, all of which were routinely used on patients. Electroconvulsive therapy and lobotomies were just some of the disturbing things that happened to patients at not only this facility, but almost every psychiatric facility. According to an article by Haunted Hamilton founder and owner Stephanie Letzniak, it was actually a time in the city's history where lunatic watching was a common pastime. Families would drive up the mountain from the city below with picnic baskets to watch and sometimes even taunt the patients as a way to enjoy a sunny afternoon. Asylum was another part of the local neighborhood, but a large steam whistle was installed in the asylum's main building to warn local residents whenever a dangerous patient escaped. When they heard that whistle, people would bring their children inside and lock the doors. Considering the deplorable conditions and the treatment of patients in the building during its history, any wonder Century Manor is long reputed to be haunted. Some even believe the tormented spirits linger to haunt both the grounds and the last remaining building. There's a story uh, told by an individual who was modeling for a photo shoot inside the old building. It started when an old steel bedpan appeared in the middle of the floor of a previously empty hallway during the photo shoot. Now, that alone was strange, but five minutes later, while they were taking photos in a room just off the hallway, they heard the distinct echo of dragging steel coming from the hall. They looked to see if somebody else had gotten in the building, but they determined there was nobody there. But the steel bedpan they had seen earlier had been moved from its original location. In a December 2014 YouTube video entitled Ghost Scream at an Insane Asylum, uh, the host shared an audio recording that had been sent to him. In it, a group of teenagers are walking around outside the vacant building, daring one another to go closer to this allegedly haunted location. When one of them whispers the words, Is anybody here? And a stink scream that sounds like it might be coming from a child can be heard very faintly in the background. Another story was shared by an audience member at a library talk about haunted locations in Hamilton, given by Haunted Hospitals uh, author. Um, storyteller went by the name of Martin. Prior to when the building was boarded up and vacated, Martin took on a second job as a security guard to bring in some extra income. That led him to working an overnight shift at the Hamilton Psychiatric Hospital. said he was often tired from having already worked a full day, so he looked forward to the walking patrols that would keep him on his feet and moving around. 
sit for a moment, bring with it the temptation to close his eyes just for a minute, and that'd be it. He'd be sound asleep. But the walking, the constant moving, that allowed him to stay alert. And that's what the world needs, more alerts. Martin's job was to patrol the abandoned buildings and tunnels in search of trespassers. While performing this work, he experienced two distinctly disturbing events that caused him to visibly, sh visibly shudder even when he was telling the tales to someone else. At one point during his rounds, he got a bit turned around and ended up slightly lost in a long, dead-end passageway. That uh, tunnel ended at a single old wooden door. Now, he looked back down that long hallway realizing it hadn't been its, his original path, and he heard a muffled sound. So he paused and listened carefully. From somewhere down that long, dark hallway, most likely from behind the wooden door to end, he could hear the muffled sounds of two or more people talking. Well, he thought he had found him some trespassers, and the trickle of adrenaline coursed through his veins, brought him fully alert as he began to make his way down that empty hallway. Well, as he got closer, the voices grew louder, and he figured he'd find a pair of mischievous, still-speaking teenagers who had snuck into the building to do some late-night exploring. He reached the door, took a deep breath, preparing for the speakers to run. The moment he spotted them, and he reached for the door and pushed it open. Well, as he opened the door, he didn't see two startled teenagers caught in the act of sneaking around in the dark. Instead, he saw two women dressed in what appeared to be old-fashioned nurse costumes engaged in deep conversation. Both of them turned their heads to look at him as uh, he stepped into the room. Two women stared at him silently for a moment before one looked at the other and said, See, I told you he'd find us. Unable to speak or even move, Martin just stood there, chill running the length of his spine as he stared at those two women for a moment. Then he backed slowly out of the room and closed the door. Standing outside that door, he tried to catch his breath and determine exactly what he'd seen. Well, he paused for a minute, working up the courage to open the door one more time. When he no longer heard any noise from the other side, he slowly pushed the door open. And he was startled to find the room completely empty. Two nurses he had seen had vanished, and the only exit to the room was the door he was standing in. So where'd they go? And an even colder chill raced down his spine at this point. Later that same evening still... Confused about whether he had imagined those two nurses in the dark room and the sounds of their voices, he was walking through a long stretch of underground tunnel when he felt a shift in the temperature. He said, you know the one pressure you sometimes feel when you try to open a door and there's another open door or a window across the room that's sucking the air out and pulling at the door. He said it was something similar to that. He described the hallways both feeling and sounding like a wind tunnel. He felt an odd overpowering pressure charging through the tunnel from behind him and he looked back didn't see anything but the atmosphere seemed to be building he heard his pace down the hallway just as the pressure seemed to reach its peak and felt something push hard against his back forcing him to advance even more quickly another second the noise and the air pressure just stopped but he'd had enough after this second incident, he left the grounds of the hospital, walked to the nearest payphone, called his boss to declare he was finished working at Hamilton Psychiatric Hospital. He'd happily work at any of the locations as a security guard, but he wasn't willing to set foot in those haunted buildings ever again. Well, Century Manor 
itself hadn't been used since 2009 as part of a Doors Open Hamilton event during which approximately 700 people toured the building. In 2014, Infrastructure Ontario, the Provincial Ministry of Public Infrastructure, denied a request from Hamilton Heritage Advocates to have a look inside the building, citing potential health and safety risk. In a CBC News article, retired psychiatric worker and local heritage advocate uh, Patricia Saunders said the building looked fine when she cleaned it up for the 2009 Doors Open Hamilton event. She expressed fears that the province was committing uh, what it called demolition by neglect and actively petitioned for a task force to be revised. Word that the grand old building would be demolished like the other buildings on the property. And despite all the stories about the building being haunted, despite the fact that it sat empty for more than 20 years, and despite the condition as a neglected derelict with boarded up windows, weathered and rusted railings, and crumbled columns, there's still interest in the old Century Manor building. Core Urban Inc., a development company, expressed a desire to turn the building into student housing for the nearby Mohawk College when Infrastructure Ontario finally put the property up for sale in March of 2015. Uh, one of the partners wants to preserve the building's heritage. He said, we're interested in it because we support the heritage of Hamilton. We also support uh, purpose-built uh, student housing. project to be a way to mitigating more single-family homes being converted and save a heritage building. So many buildings in Hamilton that have been lost over time. It's a significant building. It has nice architecture. Kids don't need to live in a refurbished dorm residence. They can live in something that's innovative and inspired. Well, based on the rich, dark history of the building and the nearby grounds of the former Hamilton Asylum for the Insane, you have to wonder what sort of images and eerie new learnings might be inspired if a student residence opens up in the building. You never know what you're going to see next. I grew up in the house. The original part was built in 1815. I was always seeing and hearing things. My grandmother assured me I was just crazy. I'd grow out of it, but I turned it into a business. Well, until tomorrow at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying, have a truly great evening, and if you hear a sound outside your window in the dark, <laughs>